Mick Dittman is squeezing through on naturalism's emanations there with heroicity and here comes Viander Cross, Viander Cross down the outside is motoring home, naturalism the leader, Viander Cross inch by inch is wearing him down, naturalism still in front, he ran out near the line but naturalism wins at a half length to Viander Cross in a bumping finish, Cavalieri I think third in front of Zamanay. The 1300 metre Silver Eagle was introduced in 2019 as a glamorous lead-up race to the rich Golden Eagle, which is run three weeks later. It's highly unlikely we'll ever see a smaller winner than the inaugural Silver Eagle winner, the inevitable. Tiny son of Dundeal responded to Nashra Willer's trademark vigour to beat three good mares for Seeker, Mizzy and Madame Rouge. In 2020, the Medagliadoro mare Flit, representing the Godolphin operation, was brilliantly ridden by Rachel King to grab the headline horse Alligator Blood in the last few strides. Last year, it was the star witness gelding AIM who outgunned Ellsberg for Hugh Bowman and Team Snowden. In the three runnings so far, the Silver Eagle hasn't proven to be a good form pointer to the Golden Eagle. The inevitable finished unplaced behind Colding, Flit was unplaced behind stablemate Colette, and AIM last year finished among the tail enders in the Golden Eagle, won by I'm Thunderstruck. This year, in an endeavour to lift the profile of the Silver Eagle, racing New South Wales have doubled the prize money to $1 million. The Silver Eagle will soar again at Randwick on October the 8th. The great stayer Rain Lover had already had 14 race starts when Mick Robins took over his training in the spring of 1968. Graham Hegney was his original trainer and won four races with the Colt, including the Adelaide Cup late in Rain Lover's three-year-old season. In the same era, Hegney also trained the champion Tobin Bronze, who was sold to American interests in November 1967 following his hat-trick of wins in the Two-Rack, the Caulfield Cup and the Cox Plate. By the time Rain Lubber was beginning his spring preparation in 68, Hegney had accepted an invitation from Tobin Bronze's new owners to go to America to see if he could improve the Australian horses in different form. Before he knew it, Mick Robins had taken over the training of 14 of Graham Hegney's team, which included Rain Lover. A few months later, he was the trainer of a Melbourne Cup winner. Sixteen months later, he was the trainer of the first dual Melbourne Cup winner in 106 years. An amazing achievement for a young horseman who was born in Broken Hill the year Farlap won the Cup and who'd spent his early working life as an apprentice butcher. Later, he did what many young, strong, healthy locals did, and that was to mine zinc, lead and silver from the rich deposits that brought great prosperity to Broken Hill. Mick hasn't trained a horse for a quarter of a century, but he has trouble keeping away from them. In recent years, he's been helping out around the Tony Noonan stables at Mornington, at least until a few months ago when he had a heavy fall at the stables, aggravating an old back injury. Pretty serious stuff when you're three months off 90. And it's a great pleasure to welcome to our podcast the one and only Mick Robins. Thanks for joining us, Mick. 
Thanks, John. Well, tripping on a mat isn't a good thing to be doing at 89 years of age. Yes, it's, uh, it's a great thing to get around. Mm. What happened, Mick? Oh, just a, probably, I think, a bit of old age and I just slipped on a mat and uh, I uh, just went down and I never got the, uh, never felt uh, my back until on the Tuesday after, but uh, it uh, kept me quiet over the, over the Christmas days. I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't go or do anything. And you had a month in hospital. Yes, I my grandson uh, came and got me and brought me up to um, the uh, Wimmer, I call it, like uh, Dimboola, Nil. Mm. Um, it's a good area, a good racing area over Christmas. And um, but I uh, I couldn't move around. I uh, went straight to the Nil Hospital. I had a month in the hospital. Mm. Well, you're not quite ready to go back to the stables yet. Do you intend to go back? Oh, I'm sort of. I'll keep. I like to keep having a look at them, keep my eye in. Mm. And um, Tony's had some. He's had about twenty-five young horses, and a couple of them are. Um, yeah, he's showing potential, and I just hope they're all right. But uh, it's uh, it's hard to get a good horse these days. Tony Noonan's a very good trainer in his own right, Mick, but no doubt he'd be interested in your opinion about the vagaries of horses. Yes, well, I met I met Tony at the races uh, at Flemington one day and then uh, a fortnight later he gave me a ring and he said, what do you intend doing? I just uh, came back from uh, Western Australia and my wife passed away and I, I intended going back to Adelaide and he said, uh, what about coming down to, uh, to Mornington? Uh, just come down for a month. He yeah. said, oh, uh, the young family, he said, uh, have a look around. So uh, I give it a thought for a while, for a week or two, and uh, next thing I, I go down and uh, had a look around and I met a few fellows I'd become mates now. But uh, So um, I decided to go down with Tony and um, – a month ended up, uh, I think, 26 years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's because but, you love horses and you've got great respect for Tony Noonan. Mick, you spent well, about... Uh, sorry? Him, him, and his, uh, him and his wife and family, they've been really good to me over the years and uh, they're still the same, they're like a second, second father, you know. You spent about three years as an apprentice butcher, earning about 30 shillings a week. But you pricked your ears when you heard that young blokes who were working down the mines were getting a lot more than that. Did you get a job straight away? Oh, yes. Uh, if, well, at that time, they had to stop people. There was butchers, plumbers, um, all tradesmen leaving, leaving their uh, jobs and going on the mines. And they had to put a stop to it because uh, there, would, there would be no one to run the town. They was all bit, would have been on the mine because mm. it was good money. They call what they call the lead bonus, and uh, it was uh, it, uh, it was too good to turn down. And mm. my mum, my dad was a slaughterman, and he, they didn't like the idea of it. They said we'll be worried about when you're going to come over, but yeah, <laughs> it yeah. made no difference. I went under. Mm. How far underground were you working? 
Oh, the furthest I went down was 1,600, you know, feet. Mm. But uh, oh, I think now it's been uh, – they're down 30, over 30 odd feet. But there were 6,000 men on the mines when I was on the mines. I think there's about 300 now. Mm. So I wonder if there was anybody in town. <laughs> no, it was, it was pretty – but broken all if it didn't, didn't – uh, didn't drink and gamble. It was a very ordinary life, you know. Yeah. Mick, I know nothing at all about mining, so just explain to me, was it a case of mining tons and tons of that natural material and then separating the zinc from the lead and the silver? Yeah, you sort of uh, used uh, gel at night that, uh, on your knock-off and blew out, blew out uh, a lot of... Uh, well, we called it uh, uh, ore, you know, and then uh, it was all transported, uh, transshipped up to the surface mm. and they had what they call a mill and it was all treated and then um, it went down to um, Port Perry in South Australia and uh, it was all uh, treated again down there and sent overseas like for uh, – Used to have uh, lead in batteries them days, uh, mm. uh, car batteries. So it was a sh- after the war. There was a sh- shortage of uh, uh, lead and silver and zinc, and that made the uh, what they call they put on a lead bonus. It was a bonus for for uh, it was a contract mining, and mm. it, uh, it, was, it was big money to be made. Mm. You were attracted to horses from a very early age. So much so that every second Sunday you'd hire a pony all day long, 9am to 5, and you would just ride. It cost you 50 shillings or two and a half pounds for the day. Bit of money in the 1940s. Oh, yes, it's, uh, I'll never forget the pony. Uh, this uh, old fella bought it for his granddaughter and, she got a little bit sick of it, and the pony used to be just in the yard. And mm. so he started, he's a pretty hard man. He pretty started hiring it out. So every second Sunday, I'd uh, I'd go and hire it. Cost me 50, 50 mm. shillings uh, to, for the uh, to ride out to my grandmother's. And my she had a little bit of a farm, mm. and um, she ended up buying me a pony then. So that's how it all started with horse man. Mm. Well, racing ceased in Broken Hill during World War II, but by the time it started up again, you were actually riding track work in preparation for the one amateur riders race of the year. You obviously went around in a few of them. Did you win one? Yeah, won a couple of them, but uh, I was on a pretty good horse. I was was no G. Moore or Roy Higgins, but I could sit on. (laughs) Good, (laughs) yeah. Did you want to be a jockey, Mick, at that stage of your life? Yes, uh, there's a few I knew used to go to Adelaide. That was the closest place out of South Australia. And mm. I got in touch with a couple of trainers, but they just had one look at me and they said, uh, no, you'd be, you'd, uh, be disappointed. You'd, you're going to get too heavy. So mm. them days, uh, trainers would look at your feet. Yeah. If you had big feet, well, uh, They'd say, no, you're going to be too big. Yeah. I think they still look at the feet of young hopefuls. I think so, yeah. Mm. You gained your trainer's licence in 1951, the year Delta won the Melbourne Cup. 
You kicked off with second-hand horses and you fluked a good one. Now tell me about this horse with a misshapen jaw. Yes, well, um, I learned to ride and track work and uh, a bit of even time, you know. I didn't know what even time was. A fellow called Jim Scott and um, he took a horse to Adelaide and uh, was staying with a old trainer and uh, this horse came into the stable to be trained by him and mm. apparently he had a accident with a feeder and mm. put a big uh, cut in his jaw and it just ended up a big lump on his jaw mm. and uh, he said, oh, he rang the owner and the owner, he said to the owner, the stewards didn't say he can't race, but they'd rather not see him race, you know. Mm. So um, he said, oh, no, don't, uh, don't send him back here. Send him to the zoo. Mm. So this <laughs> Jim Scott said, oh, don't. He looks too good a horse to do that. So he said, a couple of fellas I know, young blokes will lease him. So he um, told uh, told us about it, so we leased him and uh, brought him to Brogadilly. in that winning uh, 17 races, so that was the start of it. Yeah, Sir Hayden was his name, Mick. Sir Hayden, yeah. They was yeah. going to name him. They was going to name him Larwood because he had this big lump on his jaw, and uh, Larwood was. Uh, a champion test cricketer, bowler. He was a and, famous uh, Englishman who was involved in the Bodyline series. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I didn't know much about cricket, but uh, they told me about him. But they knocked the name back. The uh, the uh, the stewards. They uh, well, we send the uh, names for horses. Mm. They knocked Larwood back, so he ended up with Sir Hayden. So mm. it didn't make no difference. He won seventeen races. By the early 1960s, your wife's parents had moved to Adelaide and it wasn't long before she was missing them. Now, you made a big decision at this stage of your life, Mick. Uh, you moved to Adelaide with your wife, Valda, and it turned out to be a life-changing move. You started work soon after as a steel fixer. Did you know anything about that, Caper? No, nothing at all, but I... Uh... I just wanted to, uh, I wanted to get to Adelaide. Uh, I did come down in 1960 and uh, went and seen Bart Cummins. I knew Bart to say good day to, and uh, mm. I went and seen Bart, and he said, "No, I'm, um, I'm right for uh, staff," you know, which uh, he always had uh, had good horses, and he always had good staff. But I forgot to uh, mention it uh, to you. 1960, uh, he said, I'm right. Mm. And then 1968 in the Melbourne Cup, he had four runners and I had one, Rain Lover, mm. and end up winning. And he was first in the mountain yard to shake my hand. Mm. And the first thing he said was, good on your son. I should have given you a job that day. He, <laughs> he never forgot. <laughs> no, no, that was good. Well, one day you heard a whisper that Graham Hegney had a vacancy in his very successful racing stable. You moved quickly, you got the job, and you were tickle pink. Yes, um, a fellow called Johnny Shalento was um, 
knew my father-in-law and knew I was interested in horses and said Graham wanted a foreman. So uh, I went to send him and he said, can start, oh, start straight away. But uh, mm. uh, great trainer. We didn't have, didn't, he didn't have the horses that Bart had breeding-wise. Mm. Um, uh, Bart had, you know, went to New Zealand every year and bought uh, 30 or 40 Yearlings, where I don't think Graham, we I don't think we had a yearling from New Zealand. We just had local Australian bred horses. So, but he was a great trainer. Uh, he won the Melbourne Cup with Gatham Gatham after I was only there twelve months, and I thought, Gee, this is easy. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, you worked for him for eight years. I believe he was an absolute workaholic, Mick. Yes, he was. Um, he rode before he became a trainer and rode winners, but he wasn't a great jockey. But uh, turned out to be a great trainer, hard worker, and you'd, he'd never ask you to do anything that he couldn't do himself. I love the story you tell about a new batch of yearlings that turned up at the Hegney Stables sometime in 1963. There were 12 horses in the consignment, but one of them stood out like a beacon, a beautiful coppery chestnut cult by Arctic Explorer. Do you remember the occasion? Yes, I had the uh, Sunday off and then Monday morning I get the stables and because the yearlings come in and you always want to see new horses, uh, yearlings, and I could hear this horse whinnying, singing out, and uh, I thought, gee, it sounds, even his, uh, his whinny sounded loud. And uh, had no lights down the back, so I couldn't wait uh, quick enough for the come uh, the sun rise to mm. have a look at this horse. And there was twelve of them, and, and the Browns, the people that owned uh, horses, they had a little stud, and a sort of horse by Paramount, mm. and uh, they side winners, and uh, but they were nice horses. But uh, this horse that stood out was. It turned out to be Tobin Bronze, but he yeah. was just a magnificent animal, a deep chestnut. And uh, his name, uh, they named him, named him Tobin Bronze, and the name suited him really because he was like a bronze, big bronze statue. Mm-hmm. Well, for people who've forgotten and for younger generations, let me say that Tobin Bronze was an out and out champion. He won races which were not Group Ones in his day. But under today's rankings, Mick, Tobin Bronze would have won 11 Group 1 races. Yes, that's uh, it's, uh, amazing. I knew he won in America, but I didn't know how many races he did win and uh, I didn't know they were uh, – now they would have been Group 1s. Mm, well, the, his wins in Australia would have been. You know, races like the Turnbull, for instance, and the CFO Stakes – uh, the Underwood Stakes, when Tobin Bronze won them, they didn't have a group ranking. No, no, mm. no. They, uh, he, uh, like uh, I said to one of the owners, he, he first started, he used to have a two-year-old race, the Fulham Park Plate. Mm. There was only four furlongs, 800 metres. Uh, he ran about fourth or fifth. And I said, don't be disappointed. I said, he'll win a You'll win a blue ribbon, this horse. Well, mm. he won the uh, Victorian Derby, Caulfield Cup, two Cox plates. I mm. mean, he just 
just he was a he was a great horse. I've got one regular listener, Mick, who loves to hear about the temperament of champion horses. Was Tobin Bronze easy to get on with? Oh, he he wouldn't by a mile. Really, gentlemen. Yeah. Now Graham Hagney, Graham had two stable blocks in Adelaide, and you took one of them over with fourteen horses, including a very handsome colt by Latin Lover. Now, he became Rain Lover and you kicked his spring campaign off in a five-furlong dash at Victoria Park. He was unplaced naturally. Then he ran second in a one-mile welter at Morfordville. You took him straight to Melbourne. He ran second in the Craig Lees, second in the Underwood, third in the Caulfield Stakes, sixth in the Caulfield Cup to Bunratty Castle. Then he won the McKinnon before lining up in the 1968 Melbourne Cup with Jimmy Johnson in the saddle. Now, Mick, this must have been totally overwhelming to the former miner from Broken Hill. Here you are with a seven-to-one chance in the Melbourne Cup. Yes, it's uh, even when it comes around Melbourne Cup time now, uh, it, it still brings back memories, but it's still hard to believe. Uh, I say that Caulfield that year with the horse, I was stabled at Caulfield, Come race, I've been to Flemington Racecourse uh, on many occasions, but never been to a Melbourne Cup mm. until 1968. So I came with a little uh, apprentice jockey. Uh, he was with Graham, and he came over with me when uh, on loan, mm. and uh, we set out to Caulfield. So we get to Caulfield, and the first race is over. And uh, I'm carrying a bag with the gear in it, and he's got the horse. And uh, I said to him, how could you win a race here today? Look at all these people, about 85,000 people, I think it ended up to be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Three hours later, he's won by eight lengths mm. and run a race a race, uh, a race, race record. And, uh, I mean, it's just... Uh, Come Melbourne Cup time now, and I take the Melbourne Cup around, and it's mm. still hard to believe yeah. that you was involved in it. Yeah, absolutely. I think Mick said in uh, in that lead up that he arrived at Caulfield. He meant Flemington, of course, where there were eighty five thousand people. Now, at the start of the race, Mick, there was an early sensation when a horse called Wilton Park fell. A couple got tangled up with him, including one of Bart's four, Galilee. Your bloke missed all the trouble. He was about fourth at the half mile. He followed Palatial into the straight. He dashed clear turning for home. And I'll bet to this day you can't believe the way that horse sprinted up the straight at the end of two miles. No, well, he drew barrier 24 or 25, I think, and I think it was a blessing in disguise. He he sort of missed that interference when Wilton Park did fall, mm. and he got out of uh, missed all. The, it was like a scrimmage, and uh, he missed it all. So it was a it was a blessing in disguise, you know. It's a long time ago, mate. Fifty two years to be exact, but I'm sure you can remember your reaction, uh, your feelings as he went past the post, eight lengths in front. I mean, this was a hell of a long way from the Broken Hill Mines, wasn't it? 
Yes, well, uh, it was a couple of old trainers. They used to let let the uh, trainers with runners uh, up to the trainer stand to to get the number one. Well, sit sat where you like, but you, to get a good seat so you could watch the race. And it was two old trainers, Pat Quinlan and Jim Michelli. Mm. And I was lucky enough to sit. They was old. Uh, I think I was thirty three or four, and they was in their seventies. And uh, they got talking, and they said to me, they said that they seen eight different horses get to the front, a furlong from home, and not one of the eight win. Mm. Well, when Rainer was uh, six, seven, eight lengths in front, I. I won't tell you what I said. I thought, well, this is one that's not going to get yeah. beat. And uh, as it worked out, I was right. But uh, I think there's only two horses to win by eight lengths. It was Archer won the yeah. first two and, and him. That's right. When Ray Lover won that 68 Cup, his, his winning margin equaled the record margin established by Archer 106 years earlier. Mick, I'll get you to stand by for a moment. We're going to pause for a commitment on the podcast. Back very shortly with Mick Robins. The 1300 metre Silver Eagle was introduced in 2019 as a glamorous lead-up race to the rich Golden Eagle, which is run three weeks later. It's highly unlikely we'll ever see a smaller winner than the inaugural Silver Eagle winner, the inevitable. Tiny son of Dundeal responded to Nashra Willer's trademark vigour to beat three good mares for Seeker, Mizzy and Madame Rouge. In 2020, the Medagliadoro mare Flit, representing the Godolphin operation, was brilliantly ridden by Rachel King to grab the headline horse Alligator Blood in the last few strides. Last year, it was the star witness gelding AIM who outgunned Ellsberg for Hugh Bowman and Team Snowden. In the three running so far, the Silver Eagle hasn't proven to be a good form pointer to the Golden Eagle. The Inevitable finished unplaced behind Colding, Flit was unplaced behind stablemate Colette, and AIM last year finished among the tail-enders in the Golden Eagle, won by I'm Thunderstruck. This year, in an endeavour to lift the profile of the Silver Eagle, racing New South Wales have doubled the prize money to $1 million. The Silver Eagle will soar again at Randwick on October the 8th. Well, Ray Lover must have pulled up really well after the 68 Cup because you had no hesitation in lining him up in the CB Fisher Plate on the Saturday. And again, he beat Fleur, who'd run second to him in the Melbourne Cup. Fleur must have been sick of looking at Rain Lover. Yes, he ran second to him in the McKinnon, second in the Cup and second in the Fisher Plate. So <laughs> it was, a, you know, uh, well, which he was owner, you'd say if he won in, I would have won the three, but that's racing. And uh, he... Uh, he um, he was sort of a bridesmaid. Fuller was, absolutely. Now, the following autumn, Rain Lover ran third first up in a six furlong sprint. And after that, you took him straight to Melbourne, where he won the St George Stakes, the Queen's Plate, and the VRC Queen Elizabeth Stakes in succession. And then it was back to Sydney for the Chipping Norton Stakes. He ran third in the Autumn Stakes at Randwick 
and then he spotted a very good mare called Lowland, four and a half kilos in the Sydney Cup. She was a very, very good staying mare from the coming stable. But Rain Lover, I thought, was magnificent in defeat on the day, Mick. Yes, he was. Uh, she beat him in the uh, South Australian St. Ledger and then she never ran in the Adelaide Cup, which he ran in the Cup and won mm. as a three-year-old. But uh, whether she would have beat him in the Adelaide Cup, well, you'd never know. But she beat him pretty pretty easy uh, in the St. Ledger. Mm. But I was uh, I was pleased. Well, Graham trained the rain level them, but uh, everyone was pleased he never ran in the Adelaide Cup. But I think it, it made it a lot easier for him with her not running, but uh, then she came out and won the Sydney Cup. I don't know, she was, she was a, uh, pretty good. She was, uh, she would have won a lot of, or she did win a lot of races, but she was too good for him in the Sydney Cup. Mm. Well, there was a four and a half kilo weight difference, but the margin wasn't all that big, Mick. I think she beat him about a length and a quarter and he tried his heart out. I was there that yes. day, I can still see him. He, uh, Nothing went uh, wrong or anything. You just uh, she was uh, she was better on the day. Mm. Then came the spring of nineteen sixty nine, and Rain Lover had a total of eight starts. He won three of them: the Craigley, the Underwood. He was unplaced in the McKinnon. He ran fourth of fifth uh, in the McKinnon Stakes on the Saturday before his second Melbourne Cup. Were you disappointed with his McKinnon run? Yes, uh, uh, Bart always told me you uh, that was very good guide, the McKinnon and the Hotham handicap. He said if you, if you run in them on the Saturday and run well or won, you had a chance in the Melbourne Cup. But he, uh, he used to say it's a, one of them races you sort of got to run in. And he, when he won the first cup, he carried eight stone two in the old. And uh, he jumped from eight two to nine stone seven, which was sixty sixty uh, and a half or sixty one and a half. Mm. And I said to uh, when he got beat in the McKinnon, I said to Jimmy, "Oh, I can't see him winning uh, the Cup Tuesday with a uh, weight wise jumping uh, weight for eights today and jumping up to 60. Sixty uh, and a, sixty and a half. Um, he just looked at me and said he'd be better over two mile, mm. and he was right, and I was wrong. Well, there was a sensation, of course, before the race, which goes down into Australian racing folklore, when the siren sounded and the shock announcement came over the public address system that Big Falu, the pre-post favourite, was a late scratching. He'd been scouring uncontrollably in his stall and it was quickly established that Big Falou had been nobbled. An awful incident, Mick, that became the subject of a prolonged police investigation, but didn't it make a difference to Rain Lover's prospects? No, I um, uh, I thought he would have been... Um same as everyone else, that he would be very hard to beat Big Falou. On his run on the Saturday in McKinnon State, Bart always run them and they uh, 
they uh, use it as a guide. Like, uh, if they was good enough to win, they'd win on the Saturday, but uh, they always seem to have a little bit in reserve for the Tuesday. Mm. And uh, I I stabled at uh, Flemington the second year, and where I was stabled was only two doors uh, down the lane at Flemington from where bar stables were. And we raced a, it's not far away down to the, uh, where, where you stable the horses, but you still had to get a float to bring, to uh, get them to the track. Is that much people that, uh, that busy with traffic. Yeah. So uh, Rain Lover came down in the same float as Big Falu, um, like um, uh, not your afloat, you hire the floats, uh, Garrett and Griffiths. And uh, my strapper said to me when I got there to have a look at the horse, he said, I, I didn't like the look of Big Falu. And he must have been scouring in the float, you know. Mm. And uh, then when the announcement came over, I had the saddle going back to the stall to put it on. Uh, shock announcement, uh, Big Falu's been scratched. Mm. Well, uh, I didn't say nothing, but the thought went through my mind. <laughs> uh, it's one less we've got to beat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine what you said under your breath. Oh, now, yeah. Your bloke so, raced uh, handy for most of the trip, Mick. He got going at the half mile. He dashed to the front on the home turn. Don't forget he's got nine kilos more than he had the previous year and a lightweight loomed up to him, a horse called Allsop, to whom he was conceding two stone. And he sure looked the winner, Allsop, didn't he? Oh, I mean, it's all, yeah, like jockeys talking down the room and like uh, before the race, when Jimmy come out to uh, to uh, the mountain yard to Mount Rain Lover, he did say to me, uh, uh, Allsop is going to run a big race, you know, really? the jockeys. Yeah. He said, he, he's, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not saying he's going to win, but he, uh, he said the uh, Allsop's going to be very hard to beat at the weights, and I often say to myself and people now, uh, I don't, it was some good riders like Ray Drain Lover, Pat Hyland, Roy Higgins, G Moore, and I don't think any other jockey would have won the cup that day than Jimmy Johnson because with the weight, I think they would have nursed him and, and waited as long as they could to move on him, where he took off the same place as he did uh, in the previous year in the 68 Cup the, with the 8 stone 2 mm. and with the 9-7. Uh, so uh, it, it was it probably was a bit daring tactics, but mm. he knew he could run two mile and if he never rode him that way, he probably would have got beat. Yep, absolutely. Only one by a head. Uh, but he put the name of M. Robins into the record books for all time. Now, after finishing unplaced in the Queen's Plate on the final day, he went to the paddock. He came back in the autumn of 1970 for his last campaign. He had seven starts. He won three of them at Wait for Age, but he was involved in a very famous two-horse race, the Queen Elizabeth Stakes, 
in which he was beaten only half a head by Big Falou. Now, the VRC wanted to can the race, Mick, when the acceptances uh, were declared. There were only two left in it. They wanted to delete it, but they decided to run it with these two great horses and promote the hell out of it. How did you feel about running in a two-horse race? Yes, well, them days you had to go, um, I was staying at, uh, went over to get the acceptances. The acceptances had come out on the third, on the Wednesday. Uh, and then on the Thursday, acceptances come out, lunchtime. So when I walked over to the office, had a look, and uh, there's t- only two horses in it. And I thought, gee, you think someone would have left uh, uh, one in to get third prize money? Yeah. I, I think only used to be first, second, and third in them days. Mm. But. Uh, you you would have left a left one in to get the third state money would have been something, but mm. it uh, it turned out uh, it was a great race. But they, they, I think they just uh, the jockeys sort of had a conversation. Bert Bryant put out mm. his call of the race. I've still got it. Mm. Uh, it's uh, 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 he, like good enough to say they've just had a conversation through the race. He could. Yeah. Uh, Higgins and Ireland and Pat Ireland, yeah. Yeah, well, Bert Bright was at his absolute best in that race call of the Queen Elizabeth Stakes. I think it was 1970. You can still hear it, in fact, on YouTube. Uh, it's very funny. It, it is an absolute masterpiece and it made the race, didn't it, Mick? Oh, yes. It's, uh, it was, well, they didn't go right through the field. They had some. Had to talk about something. I, know, I think they was talking about playing golf, and I think uh, Roy's wife just had a baby or something. Yeah, <laughs> and that's right. It was, a, it was that no, was a great call. Yeah, it certainly was, and uh, it was reprinted in a very famous media magazine of that era called B and T Broadcasting and Television, and and Bert Bryan's call of the Queen Elizabeth Stakes was reprinted word for word. The only race call in history to be published. It was quite amazing. Now for that, yeah, I didn't know that. Yep, for that listener, Mick, who likes to know about the temperament of good horses, what about Rain Lover? Easy to get on with? Yes, he, uh, he was a bit, you know, a bit of spirit in him. I think that's why he was so good. He'd, uh, if you didn't watch him uh, getting on him and getting off, you know, he'd have a bit of a buck, but I reckon that made all the difference to him and he had the will to win. Mm. You had major success with other horses from the Reed Empire, including Dale Lace. You won a South Australian derby with him and you won a South Australian Oaks with Rain Amore. They could breed a decent horse, couldn't they? Oh, just unbelievable... Um like Malcolm Reed, the owner of Gatham, uh, no, Clifford Reed, the owner of uh, Rain Lover, mm. he won the 45 Melbourne Cup with Rain Bird. Correct. Yeah. And I think it works out now. I think he only had three, three runners in the Melbourne Cup mm. uh, 40, 45, 68, and 69, and won the three of them. Yeah. Three from three. What about a horse called Master Kildare? I seem to recall you winning a lot of races with him. Yes, well, he uh, he was a handy horse by Matrice, but a bit of uh, oh, a bit of a funny horse. But um, Graham, had, we had him in the stable, and 
uh, I train a little bit different. He used to be a hard pulling horse, and uh, just trained the method of training him, working him, and um, I think he ended up winning twenty uh, odd races with him. Um, t- brought him to Melbourne, and he beat a fair horse in Melbourne called Alcatraz. Mm. Uh, beating twice, you know, so he was a bit underrated. I mentioned earlier that you operated from a second stable at Graham Hegney's property, uh, which you leased for quite some time, but eventually it came up for sale and you had to move quickly. Yes, um, a good old trainer and unload, he was a champion two-year-old trainer, Jack Plews, mm. had this stable and uh, he got killed in a car accident and um, uh, Mrs. Pleasel uh, just kept the stables going and uh, she lived next door but and uh, Graham leased them off her in years after and I when he came back from America he sort of handed the lease in and I had nowhere to go and I, uh, mm. I, I carried on the lease with her and uh, I wanted to buy him, and she said uh, nothing could be done until the boy turned 21. So um, just left it at that. And only one Sunday morning, my wife went out and got the paper, the Sunday paper, and it was in the paper. She said, you better get moving. This place is uh, stables and the house and it's going up for auction. Mm. So unbeknownst to me, um, decided to sell it, but uh, as it worked out, I ended up buying it, but uh, mm. it was a, a bit of a shock that uh, I had, what, 20-odd horses uh, going to be sold and nowhere to put the 20 horses I would have been uh, mm. would have been battling. You were devastated in the mid-1980s when your wife Valda succumbed to a lymph node cancer. She found a treatment which saw her through another 10 years, Mick, but a very harrowing ordeal for you and your daughter, Melissa. Yes, uh, it was uh, pretty hard and uh, you sort of, um, you had, uh, well, she was one of them people you couldn't, uh, couldn't go into a nursing home. or You could have, but uh, it wasn't the type to be looked after. Uh, at that age and so she stayed home and uh, it made it a bit hard uh, trying to train horses and and uh, look after her. Mm. I think we've got to pay tribute to that special daughter of yours, Melissa, who at an advanced age suddenly decided to study law and after an intense few years she graduated in criminal and family law, a tremendous achievement. Yes, uh, she was into uh, at school into drama and acting, and she um, went to England for a couple of years. And came back, and to my surprise, uh, um, got married mm. to a farmer. Well, if someone said she would have married a farmer, it was like me <laughs> leaving Broken Hill and yeah. saying. This bloke's going to train an Ormond Cup winner. Yeah. <laughs> Seemingly impossible. <laughs> oh, gee, they're good stories. For the last 10 years, you've been a part of the Victoria Racing Club's ambassadorial team who take the Melbourne Cup trophy all around Australia. 
You've been to a lot of places and you've made a lot of friends, Mick. I know you've enjoyed every minute of it. Yes, um, a fella called Joe McGrath. He works at the VRC and great fella. He uh, got in contact with me and asked me would I be one of the ambassadors. And I've, uh, when you go around mainly to schools and hospitals and nursing homes, uh, the the school the they get out of getting their photo taken with the Melbourne Cup, it's just a credit to the VRC to mm. to make it available every year for people to have their photo taken with it. And people, I say to them, uh, people go to the Melbourne Cup on Melbourne Cup Day and can't get within a mile of it. <laughs> and there you, paper, you can hold it and uh, get your photo taken. It's a great, it's a great thing. You know, I know you'd like to pay tribute before we finish our podcast to the jockey who shared your wonderful journey. Jimmy Johnson, one of the very best of his generation. He's still going strong. In fact, he turned 90 last year. Mick, he's about a year older than you. Yes, a, a great fella. I, uh, he's, uh, he was a big help to me. I, I, I had been to Melbourne with horses but never to a, a cup carnival and uh, it's different altogether and he just knew everybody and uh, track riders and uh, people at the track morning and you know, when you're working your horses there's not one person he didn't know and he introduced you to all the people that he knew but that was one of the only bad thing that happened to me yeah. uh, while training Rain Lover was to tell, tell Jimmy he wasn't riding him in the uh, second Sydney Cup. Uh, the owner uh, was said that I want a Sydney jockey and so mm-hmm. put G Moore, yeah. which G Moore was a good jockey and uh, I end up a good mate of his too. But uh, mm-hmm. that was the only sort of bad thing I, I happened to me while I was training Rain Lover was to tell Jimmy he wasn't uh, riding a horse after winning two Melbourne Cups. Yeah, but he was such a professional, Mick. He'd have handled it well. He did. He, mm. um, uh, Pat Holland, uh, and uh, well, that was bad enough to tell him when he wanted to ride him in the in the uh, in Sydney. But I wanted to give him three runs in Melbourne before he went to Sydney, mm. and then uh, he. He informed me, rang me up, the owner, and said, "Don't put him on in Melbourne here to put P. Highland on." So that was that was uh, nearly as bad. Yeah, I'll say. Well, Mick, what a life and what a journey you've had, from a butcher's shop to the metal mines to the ranks of Australia's top horse trainers. You got more fun and more everlasting pleasure out of your two Melbourne Cup wins as Bart Cummings got out of twelve. You know, it must be nice to know that they'll be talking about you and Rain Lover years from now, just as we continue to talk about Archer at Cup Time every year. Yes, John, it's, uh, it's still, uh, when it comes around Melbourne Cup t- Day, it's still hard to believe that you won one and then come back and won the, won the second one and only two horses, uh, only four horses ever done it, mm. and um, four trainers. 
uh, was Bart. Uh, uh, Rain number 68, 69. Uh, Think big 74, 75. Right. And then Kyber Diva put the, the ice on the cake. She won three. <laughs> yeah. But it yeah. uh, turned out she uh, she was a well. They were, you don't win Melbourne Cups with hacks, you know. They've got to no. they've got to be uh, they've got to have a bit of ability. Hey Mick, I've got to let you in on a little secret. When we were setting up this interview, I asked a couple of people close to you if your hearing was good enough to conduct an interview. Let me tell you what I've discovered during the course of our uh, negotiations and the course of this recording. Your hearing's better than mine. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it's probably uh, at this time, uh, this age, uh, I mean, uh, my memory's pretty good. I'll say it is. It certainly is, Mick, and it's been an absolute delight having you on the podcast Thanks for your time, and uh, I'll be in touch shortly, mate. Certainly around Melbourne Cup time, I want to get your tip. Yes, John, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I used to love watching your shows with the trotters, uh, and uh, I never never drove a trotter in a race, but uh, I always interested in watching you uh, work your horses. Good on you, Mick. Lovely to be with you. Thanks for your time on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Racing New South Wales didn't forget the tab highways and the midways in the latest round of prize money increases. The weekly editions of both races will go from $100,000 to $120,000 as from September the 1st. The tab highways introduced in 2015 have been a runaway winner for racing New South Wales and country participants. Every bit as popular are the midways, introduced as recently as July 2021 and now a primary focus of the smaller metropolitan and provincial stables. How fitting it was that the very first midway was won by our Bellagio Miss, trained by Greg Hickman, who'd been a prime mover in the creation of the concept. The Tab Highways have created tremendous interest among country owners who are constantly on the lookout for a potential highway horse. Bush trainers have something to aim for when they feel they have a progressive horse in the stable and the punters find the Tab Highways great betting mediums. Country owners and trainers had cause for a double celebration when they learned prize money for the Kosciuszko would leap from $1.3 million to $2 million. The highways and the midways and the $2 million Kosciuszko are a major part of the new look of New South Wales racing.